Trial Brief with your host, David Otto. Welcome back to the Trial Brief, everybody. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, I took some time off, uh, you may have noticed, but we are back and we are better than ever. So I'm really looking forward to get going here today. We have a great episode for you today. You may remember last July, I did an episode on wrongful convictions and we focused on a report that was issued by the District Attorney of Kings County, which is Brooklyn, New York. The DA was Eric Gonzalez, and he put out really a a stunning report on an examination of 25 wrongful convictions that occurred in his office over a long period of time. And the report was entitled 426 Years, an Examination of 25 Wrongful Convictions in Brooklyn, New York. And you may also remember that I discussed one of those cases because it was actually one of my clients and we represented that client and their family in a case that stemmed from that wrongful conviction. And it was one of the cases that was featured in that report. If you haven't heard that episode, I I would suggest going back. It was a two-part episode where I had the privilege of speaking with D.A. Gonzalez about that report and about the conviction review unit in his office and his post-conviction justice bureau and how they were trying to rectify these wrongs, uh, these injustices that were committed over many years. So I I would suggest going back and, and listening to that. But last month, I came across an article in the New York Law Journal entitled False Confessions, Mistaken Identification, and Wrongful Convictions. And it was written by one of the leading civil rights litigators in this entire country. And in fact, his firm, where he is a partner, was voted by U.S. News and World Report in 2013 as the civil rights law firm of the year. Ilan Maisel represents the powerless. He represents children, people with disabilities, disenfranchised voters, victims of police abuse, prison abuse, wrongful convictions, sexual harassment, and all forms of discrimination. Elon helped save the High Line in New York City. He has represented Martha Stewart, the Apollo Theater, the NAACP, the New York City Council. He's a true super lawyer, earning that recognition every year since 2012. He has won numerous awards for his outstanding public service. He's written for the Washington Post, USA Today, the Chicago Tribune, and the National Law Journal. He also blogs for law.com, and he writes that civil rights litigation column in the New York Law Journal that I referenced to. He's a frequent commentator on civil rights issues in the national media, and I am incredibly fortunate to have Elon with me today to discuss this really important topic and issue. Ilan, thank you so much for being here today. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get involved and interested in civil rights litigation and these type of cases? I've been very lucky to be a civil rights lawyer for my whole career since since clerking. And that has always been at this firm, Emory, Shelley, Bringroff, Abadie, Ward and Mazel. And we have a general litigation practice, commercial litigation, but we're also I think most well-known for our civil rights litigation practice. What I like about it is it's first helping people. This is why I went to law school. I wanted to help the little guy. I wanted to speak truth to power. I mean, these are sort of corny 
catchphrases, but it's true. Uh, that's really what motivated me to become a lawyer. And I've been very lucky to be at a firm where, where we can do that. So whether it's wrongful conviction cases or police misconduct cases or prison misconduct or disability abuse or discrimination cases. I mean, these are all extremely important uh, cases for the people we represent, hopefully for making change. Yeah. You've represented some um, and had some pretty significant cases, significant clients, significant cases. And um, can you just tell us about some of those? Sometimes people say, well, what is, what is your favorite case? It's, but you know, it, it's every case is of course important. I, when I think of some cases I'm really proud to have worked on. One of them was the uh, Pine Bush anti-Semitic bullying case. This was a, a school district about 80 miles northwest of New York City, where there was just virulent anti-Semitism throughout the, the school district. Swastikas in the walls, doing Hitler salutes and a white power chants and throwing pennies at, at Jewish students. And and so we, we had a huge fight against that school district that lasted a number of years and uh, and ended up with, I think, a very strong settlement and an important injunctive relief as well. I've done a lot of disability abuse cases, represented the family of Jonathan Carey, a 13-year-old who was asphyxiated by his caregiver in a New York State group home. And I've done a number of similar cases since then. The so-called Bronx Zoo case uh, was a group home in the Bronx where there was just horrific abuse of a number of uh, people with developmental disabilities, people who could not speak for themselves. And we represented them and their families for a number of years until we got justice there. Uh, I mean, I could speak for a long time about cases. I'm very passionate about them. But you know, civil rights work is is really important and meaningful to me. You know, I think that's why you've, you've been, obviously, that's why you've been so successful at what you do. Let's talk about false confessions and you know, one of the things you cite early on in the article is the report of the New York State Bar Association's Task Force on Wrongful Convictions. I think that goes back to the, the mid 2000s. Yes. I think. What prompted that report? I would say that exoneration slash wrongful conviction work really took off first with the, the Innocence Project. They led the way. This was, of course, a great project started by Peter Neufeld and Gary Shack uh, at Cardozo to examine whether people who've been convicted of crimes really committed them. And their focus has always been DNA cases. DNA, of course, is extraordinary technology that lack, you know, we did not have decades ago that now can give very powerful evidence as to the guilt or innocence of a given suspect. And through their DNA work, the Innocence Project uncovered a number of common causes of wrongful convictions, false confessions being a very prime cause, mistaken witness identification, another prime cause, and a number of other causes. And so this led to, I would say, the beginning of an understanding in our courts and among lawyers that we have a problem. Uh, and the problem is that we do have thousands of people throughout the country who are factually innocent, who have been convicted of very serious crimes, many of them serving life in prison. And this led to a number of reports in New York State and throughout the country as to how do we deal with this issue. Yeah, I did an, an episode with Eric Gonzalez, the district attorney in, in Kings County. And when District Attorney Gonzalez took over, he also published a report after an investigation of a, a number of the cases in Kings County. Uh, and one of those was my client who was falsely convicted and unfortunately ended up dying in prison serving that time. Mm. Um, these reports and, and these investigations are vital. 
they're necessary. And as you said, they've uncovered some of these gross injustices. And you note in your article that false confessions contribute to almost 25% of known cases of wrongful conviction. And if I were to make that comment to a lay person, which I have in my family, they don't understand how someone could, could confess to a crime they didn't commit. So how does that happen? Well, I think of what the Bronx District Attorney recently said, which is that pretty much anyone can be induced to give a false confession, and it's not difficult. So, I mean, what are the factors that go into a false confession? There are many. Do we have uh, someone who is young? Do we have someone who potentially has a developmental disability? Do we have someone who is impressionable? Okay, we're just scratching the surface so far. What are the conditions of the interrogation? How long was the interrogation? The longer an interrogation is, the more likely you're going to get a false confession because the message the interrogators are sending is, until you admit to something, we're not letting you go. Has the suspect been denied food, drink, uh, sleep, access to family, access to counsel? Just about anyone could confess to something they didn't commit because you kind of get to a situation where you just want to end the interrogation. You want to be free. You want to tell them what they want to hear so that you can get out. Many people believe, incorrectly and tragically, that even if they falsely confess to something, to just sort of end the interrogation, the truth will come out later because, of course, they know they're innocent. But the truth doesn't always come out later, or at least the prosecutors and, and juries don't always understand what the truth is later. You know, this isn't just children who falsely confess. This isn't just people with a low IQ. This, this is a lot of people who are put into a very difficult situation and are basically trained through the interrogation to give the answers that the interrogator wants to hear. Yes. Along those lines where the person may think, hey, look, the, the truth will come out uh, eventually. You know, there'll be evidence that I didn't do this. The, the problem is that these confessions are videotaped almost always nowadays. And you have this video and unless you can get that suppressed, that video is extremely powerful. Yeah, well, the, the confession is often videotaped, but the interrogation usually is not. Right, exactly. And so, uh, you know, if you want to understand the iceberg, you don't just look at what's above water, right? I, I mean, the critical work occurred before the camera was turned on. So what happened before the camera was turned on? Uh, and so I, in my view, it should be, uh, required in, in every confession case that police turn on that video from the very beginning of the interrogation, the very first second. So let's get a complete view of what happened. Let's see that, you know, that criminal defendant uh, having denied guilt, you know, 20, 30 times. Let's see what the police did to then make that person confess. Let's see what information the police fed to the criminal defendant that was then regurgitated in the video confession. Uh, and in, until unless we have that, we really know very little about the truth of what led to the confession. We had the technology. It's easy for police, it's easy for prosecutors to video from the beginning. We have the digital space. This is not expensive. It's just a matter of will. Let's have the will to get to the truth and not just the will to you know, have the gotcha evidence at the end that leads to a potential conviction. And now years ago, when you didn't have video, you relied on these written confessions. Even going back to when I was a prosecutor, you would get a written confession that was in the handwriting of the detective. 
that was written in sentence structure that the defendant would in no way ever structure a sentence that way. And it just seemed, it just had a feel of putting the paper in front of them and, and having them sign it. And even some of those cases lead to convictions. There are even cases where the detective might write out the confession and the defendant doesn't sign it, but the detective claims that, that the defendant agreed to it verbally. And that then becomes the evidence at trial. This is really not a way to adjudicate criminal cases or to decide extremely important issues of guilt or innocence in, in serious cases that could result in a life in jail. It just isn't. Sure. False confessions aren't obviously aren't the only the only problems and the only factors that lead to wrongful incarcerations. We also, as you wrote about, have instances of mistaken identification. As you point out in your article, as attorneys, we get to cross-examine witnesses and and their opportunity to observe. And, you know, when the prosecutor puts on the witness who says, that's the guy, I'll never forget his face. How many times have we cross-examined and it turns out that maybe they weren't in a position to see what they thought they saw? And there's a lot of factors that go into to that. And maybe you, if you could just peel that, uh, that onion away a little bit for us. Sure. Well, I would first suggest that we all take a look at uh, this magnificent database prepared by the University of Michigan Law School, which has compiled a database of every known exoneration since 1989 in the country. According to their statistics, uh, there have been 782 exonerations involving a mistaken witness identification uh, for a grand total of 9,455 lost years uh, in prison uh, you know, for people who are innocent. And that's as of today. Probably next week, that number will be higher. So staggering injustice caused by mistaken witness identification. And a number of these cases are DNA cases where we can say for a fact, you know, this was not the, the guilty party. And yet you had a witness who pointed at that person at trial and said, I will never forget that face. It was him. So how does that happen? We have a huge social science research now that uh, talks about various factors that go into mistaken witness identification. First of all, this is a phenomenon really for stranger witness identification. So this really doesn't apply to you know, your best friend who you can identify in any number of circumstances. This applies to strangers. So we have the short amount of time involved in most crimes, often a matter of just seconds. We have the huge stress that the witness is under. We have, if there's a gun involved or a weapon, the witnesses look at the weapon. That's what they're focused on, not the, the face of the person. Um, and stress distorts memory in, in, in a great way. We have... Uh, the, the phenomenon of uh, mistaken cross-racial identification. When people are identifying someone of a different race, um, they do much, much worse than they do for someone of their own race. Then we have all of the problems with the identification process, lineups, which are inherently suspect. Because in a lineup, what people do is they compare different people within the lineup. Right? Who looks most like the guilty party. And that tells you nothing, right? That just tells you that out of eight people, one person looks a little bit more like, you know, the person you saw than the other seven. Um, so lineups already are, are suspect. Having the detective uh, know who the suspect is and then take you in front of a lineup 
is problematic because the detective will either consciously or unconsciously suggest to you what the right answer is. We often have the phenomenon of, and I have a, a couple of cases like this, where a detective will show a photo pack with a number of photos to a witness. The witness will not identify anyone in the photo pack. And then they go to a lineup and someone from that photo pack was in the lineup. And they look familiar and they identify that person. Why are they identifying that person? Because they were primed and tainted by the photo pack. They see someone who looks familiar and they think that's the person. Sort of a transference of identification. So there's so many factors that go into this. When we take a look at this photo array, you could tell they were handpicked. Not so much anymore. I haven't seen it, but you used to see that they were handpicked to to really suggest, you know, have the defendant stand out in that photo array. And in lineups, we often have, you know, fillers who uh, are, are not really random, right? Uh, where where this suspect really does stand out for one reason or another. So little of this was really known uh, back in, say, the early '90s, where a lot of these exoneration mm -hmm. cases are coming from. Right. And, but now we know. And so, okay, we didn't understand it then, but now shame on us if we don't correct those injustices. How do we do it? I believe we should have a systemic review of every single case that relied on a stranger witness identification, a false confession, or a confession, or both. We should apply the latest social science research to that information. We should have conviction integrity units, integrity units in every district attorney's office review those cases, and we should be systematic. We shouldn't trust the quality of that evidence. You know, I, knowing what I know now, uh, I, I would, I wouldn't trust myself to make an identification in, in a in a criminal case of someone I don't know. I just wouldn't, um, and and I, and I wouldn't trust almost anyone else either. So, if we have one witness. You know, witness uh, identification cases. That should be first on the list. Every one witness identification case should be scrutinized. Probably many of them should be vacated because that evidence is not reliable. So when you say scrutinize it, how do we do that? You know, is there, is there a, an independent board or council or is there something within the district attorney's office? How, how do you envision that? Sure. The first reform that we need, which many district attorney's offices are adopting is to have a conviction integrity unit within the office, a unit devoted entirely to re-examining convictions from that office. Not every county has such an office, you know, what we call a CIU, but they should. Uh, and so the first indication of whether a district attorney is serious about reform and serious about looking at these cases is, do they have a conviction integrity unit? That's number one. Number two, people in that unit should not be career prosecutors. Or at least the unit should be should include a number of people who are not career prosecutors, because we want a different perspective. We want a perspective of people who have not spent their entire lives putting people in prison. Uh, you know, people who have a perspective of perhaps this prosecution was mistaken. So first, we need the the infrastructure of these conviction integrity units. Once we have that, they have the ability and the power to review really any case uh, from that office going back decades. And what I would put first on that list is every one witness identification case, you know, and perhaps starting with every one witness identification case where someone is still in prison. I mean, those have to be the highest, uh, the highest order of business because those cases are suspect.
uh, and they should have you know, the experts, the social science experts, look at the conditions of that identification and give them an opinion. Like, is, is this a reliable witness? Is this reliable testimony or not? And if it's not, the conviction should be vacated. It can always be tried again if there's uh, evidence that has some substance, but a one witness identification case, suspect. And going to your point about um, relying on experts, you know, there's an issue with experts being permitted to testify in court on, on this subject. What is the state of that? Where are we with that in New York as far as the, the uh, admissibility of these types of experts? Well, the New York Court of Appeals has recognized that these types of experts can offer very important and valuable testimony. Now, if you have just a one witness identification case, you'll almost certainly be allowed to have uh, expert testimony. You know, that rule should apply whenever there's any witness identification case involving stranger identification. That testimony should always be provided because it's counterintuitive to the jury. I mean, as you said earlier, the jury sees that evidence. I see that face, you know, the witness coming into court and saying, that's him. I'll never forget a face. That's powerful evidence. And it can be particularly powerful because the witness truly believes it. They're not lying. They're just mistaken. And that's very difficult to rebut without an expert. Yeah. And that's that's a point I try to make to to lay people all the time as well, that people aren't lying. You know, they're not trying to obtain some false conviction or, or find someone guilty who didn't do the crime. They're just mistaken, but they don't know they're mistaken or they don't believe their mistake that they could be mistaken. I would say to your listeners that if you're ever on a jury, I'm just gonna make a public service announcement here. If you're ever on a jury and you have a stranger identification, scrutinize that testimony very carefully. Understand that it's probably not very reliable. Same with a confession case. You know, did they record the entire interrogation from beginning to end? If not, ask yourself, why not? You know, does that create a reasonable doubt in and of itself? You know, be very careful with this type of evidence uh, yeah. because it is suspect. Yeah, and and even if you know you're gonna you're speaking to a large number of lawyers also uh, on this podcast, and whenever I can speak at a CLE uh, or a continuing legal education uh, course on trial practice, one of the things in the criminal realm when you're dealing with these confessions and videotape confessions, you really need to uh, on the uh, the hearings, the evidentiary hearings. That's the whole trial, right? I mean, that's where cases are won and lost, whether you can get the evidence suppressed or not, and whether you can get this confession suppressed. This is where you need to focus. You have to have that attention to detail and, and to be able to question in an, in an orderly fashion, right, as to when that video began. Lawyers sometimes look in the, in the macro, not the micro, on cross sometimes, and they, they may look at the chain of custody. You know, they may be concerned about when they were offered water or food, which is important, things like that. But the most important thing are those timestamps. And you really have to pay attention to this, to the timestamps and the chronology of the entire encounter, right? That entire encounter with law enforcement from the beginning of, of the arrest through the end of that video being shut off on the convention, every second has to be accounted for. Uh, absolutely. And the other thing I would suggest is you retain an expert on false confessions before that hearing. Try to have that expert testify at the hearing. Uh, and if the evidence does come in at trial, have that expert testify at trial. Uh, you know, press the court to allow you to have that expert. I agree with you. I think that's that's excellent advice, and I I I think that's that's something that you have to consider. But I also 
I, I know the problem with that is on the on these hearings, whether it's a map, a Huntley, or whatever it, it is, the court is really trying to limit limit the the scope of that. I find most judges would be very very reluctant to allow that expert to testify. We're we're still at the beginning of. Um, I think the legal profession really understanding what's at stake here and what the uh, research shows. Um, and, you know, the Innocence Project started us on this road. Uh, that uh, state bar task report is helpful. Other reports like that are helpful. And slowly but surely, I, I do believe this is seeping into the courtroom and that uh, lawyers and judges understand more and more that we need to question this type of evidence we need to question these convictions and that finality is not the only value here. You know, truth is a value. Justice is a value. Uh, if the wrong person was convicted, there have been two great injustices. First, the horrible injustice done to the victim. And second, the horrible injustice done to the wrongfully convicted defendant. And really third, that the family of that victim never saw justice from the actual killer or, or, or whatever it may be. So mm-hmm. we, we need to correct all those injustices and there's, and we don't have a moment to spare because people are in jail right now who need help. Yeah. You really, you really did a great job of, of really um, condensing it into its basic elements. And I appreciate that. And people like you and, and being leaders in this and, and writing about it and being at the forefront of this issue is the reason why it is now seeping into the into our justice system. And, you know, we're very grateful for that. And, and, I, and I thank you for that. It's a, it's a great, great, great service that you do. Keep doing it. I'm sure you will. You're very passionate about it. Um, I don't want to let you go without at least touching a little bit on police reform, only because you wrote a great article. Um, I, I think it was at the end of last year on police reform in the Law Journal, which I thought was really thoughtful. I thought it was really insightful. And I, I, I thought it was really spot on. So if you have a couple more minutes for me, if we maybe we could just sure. talk, talk about some of that. I don't want to get too deep into it because we don't have a lot of time. But if you could just give me an overview of, we're all very frustrated, you know, with with what's going on and what has been going on uh, with policing, especially here in in the city. But forget about the city; there, you know, what's going on in Minnesota and elsewhere. But what do we do? Well, of course, this problem with. Um Policing has existed a long time. Uh, the thing that has changed is the iPhone, you know, and, and the PDA. I mean, now we have it on video. Uh, and so what do we do? That's a very big topic. We need actual consequences for police who violate the law, not just a settlement that's paid by the city of New York. We need disciplinary consequences for lawbreakers. We need civilian oversight of the disciplinary process uh, throughout the country. That's been controversial, but it's absolutely necessary because police departments have done a very, very bad job of disciplining themselves. And it's really a shame because there are so many officers who do a, a really fine job of policing. But when police departments protect every single officer, no matter what they're wrongdoing, it, it, it taints the entire department. And so we do need a civilian oversight of discipline. I think we need a lot more transparency as to what police officers are doing, who has been sued, who has been subject to complaints, 
the repeal of Section 58 in New York State was very positive. Sure. Uh, and more of this information is coming online. And that's important because they are public officers. They represent us. They have enormous power. The least we can do is know uh, what they're doing. We need much better training of police to de-escalate uh, when there are force situations. We just see constantly needless escalation uh, of force, and, and that is wrong. And of course, we have the huge problem of systemic racism, which cannot be tackled only by you know training police. But we need to have a much better understanding of the, the huge disparities in policing for people of color. Part of that in many places, including New York City, is the idea of a residency requirement. Uh, we have a, you know, a tremendous number of, of police officers in New York City who are not from New York City, mm-hmm. who are then policing communities of which they are not a part. And at a certain level, that becomes unhealthy uh, because the, com- the community that's policing should resemble and have a relationship to the community that's being policed. So, I mean, this is a, you know, a huge topic, but um, we have a yeah, long way I, to go. I know. And I, I apologize for putting you on the spot with that because it is, there's so much, I mean, we could, we could talk about systemic uh, racism as a problem with, with policing for, for days here. E- each of these things you touched on, we could spend a lot of time on, but uh, you know, I think the, the bottom line through all of this is that there's not going to be an overnight cure for any of this. Um, th- there's no simple answer. The answers are things that are going to take a lot of time and, and they're going to take a lot of will. You know, they're going to take a lot of commitment. And I just don't know if it's there. I, I, I am shocked that we're, even, we're still at a point where we are now, even with all the things that have transpired over the last 10 or 15 years. So progress has been very slow. Let's start with a, a solid, strong civilian oversight bill. Uh, that is something that we should do at the state, at the city level. I mean, throughout the country, this is a constant issue. If we know that we have a, a board or an institution independent of the department that has the ability to meet out discipline, including severe discipline, I do think that that will create some change. What do we have to lose? We've been, you know, advocates have been at this issue for decades. Uh, this is recommended in the 70s and the 80s. Let's do it. You know, let's have that kind of oversight. I mean, I had a case in the late 90s uh, of a police officer who threw his walkie-talkie radio at a fleeing suspect, and he flew with such force uh, at his head. And by the way, this fleeing suspect, I should say, it was a very low-level uh, allegation of crime that this was not a serious or dangerous situation. But he took his walkie-talkie and he threw it at his head and that ultimately killed him. And so what did the police department do? They ultimately brought a disciplinary charge against the officer for throwing his walkie-talkie radio, not for using excessive force, but for depriving himself of a means of communication. (laughs) That's what they actually charged him with. And I was in the room for that disciplinary proceeding. Shocking. I mean, this is our disciplinary process. And we're really not much better today in 2021 than we were back in 1998 or so when this when this happened. Uh, so we need to improve that process. And then I think we will start to see at least some change. Well, Elon, I, I wish I, I could talk to you all night about this. This is um, important, really important stuff. Thank you for the important work that you do, uh, you and your firm. I'd love to have you back on 
to, to talk more about this. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. Let's continue the fight for civil rights. It's absolutely everyone's fight. Amen. Thank you. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Elon is a accomplished uh, musician, composer, writer, and has performed as a pianist at Lincoln Center and elsewhere. And he's recorded CDs. He's written uh, and composed a musical called Patriot. Um, I, I can go on and on. He's he's quite an interesting person and, and extremely talented in many ways. And maybe we'll have him back on to discuss his his musical endeavors at another time. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time on The Trial Brief.